0: Now, you might be noticing, I don't feel about that war the way we were told we were supposed to feel about that war, the way we were ordered and instructed by the United States government to feel about that war. See, my mind doesn't work that way. I got this real moron thing I do. It's called thinking. And I'm not a really good American because I like to form my own opinions. I don't just roll over when I'm told to. Sad to say, most Americans just roll over on command. Not me. Not me. I have certain rules I live by. My first rule, I don't believe anything the government tells me. Nothing. And I don't take very seriously the media or the press in this country who, in the case of the Persian Gulf War, were nothing more than unpaid employees of the Department of Defense and who most of the time function as kind of an unofficial public relations agency for the United States government.
1: Hey everybody, CJ here with another big bazooka blast of historical red pills to fire off into the darkest depths of the interwebs. This is going to be episode 86 of the Dangerous History Podcast, another installation of DHP heroes and usual caveats of I don't mean heroes in the way of hero worshipping people and trying to copy them in every way or anything like that. But more people that I admire for one reason or another. And I do DHP heroes and DHP villains, and I've tried so far, and I want to continue to keep trying to not pick the most blatantly obvious choices all the time. You know, to to not be lazy and just be like, oh, Hitler's a bad guy, or some person who cured a bad disease is a good guy. Like, I'm trying to be a little bit less obvious than that when choosing my quote-unquote heroes and villains to profile. And in this case, I picked, of all things, a stand-up comedian who is one of my heroes in a lot of ways and who has inspired me in, in many of the ways I look at the world and question things. And that, of course, is the late, great George Carlin. Now, I'm a big stand-up comedy fan. I really admire the art form. When you see a really good comedian at the top of his game, to me, it's, it's right up there with watching you know, a world-class athlete put on the performance of their life. You know, there's an admiration that I have for anybody who's truly mastered a craft. And the great thing about stand-up comedy is it's one of those that uh, you get to have fun and laugh your ass off while you're admiring a master craftsman. Now, there are a lot of comics, past and present, that I'm a big fan of. And a short list of some of my favorites who are still around and still, you know, performing today would include people like uh, Louis C.K., Joe Rogan, Doug Stanhope... Bill Burr, Greg Fitzsimmons, guys like that, to name just a few. And, and believe me, I'm fans of many more than those. Those are just some of the better-known ones that I'm particularly uh fond of. And one thing you'll notice, just based on those names that I listed, is that despite the fact that they have different styles and things like that, they're guys that you would probably consider, at least to some degree, to be sort of thinking man's comics. Guys who, you know, can do the the kind of body humor and you know, sex jokes and observational humor and other things like that, and do it well, but are also, at least sometimes in their act, engaging in social criticism through humor. And these are the types of comedians that make you not just laugh, but also think. And they have intelligent critiques of society. And without hesitation, without question, hands down, my favorite stand-up comedian of all time is George Carlin, who probably is the thinking man's comedian par excellence. He's also a guy who was a genuine master, especially the last few decades of his career. And I use that term master here in the the large, grand sense that, say, Robert Greene does in his book Mastery. George Carlin is somebody who I believe ultimately, at his best, transcended his particular field, his particular art form, and in many ways, I think, raised the intellectual standards of stand-up comedy in the 20th and early 21st century. And while not everyone would place George Carlin at the top of their own list as their all-time favorite comedian as I do, I think that there are very few stand-up comedy fans who wouldn't have him somewhere in their top five. He makes you laugh, but very often he also makes you think. And just for me personally, I have to say, one of the reasons I have such fondness and respect for George Carlin is he's the only comedian so far who in addition to making me laugh and making me think was more than that a big major influential uh, major influence on my own intellectual development going all the way back from my teenage years when i first started listening to his stand up comedy uh through to the present day while lots of comedians have made me think in addition to laugh including all the guys that i mentioned a few minutes ago as as current comics that i'm a fan of george carlin has been influencing how i see the world for like, over 20 years of my life, including some of the most formative years of my intellectual development. And I think that at least part of my current views on the world, including my views on society, religion, politics, can actually be traced back more to George Carlin than to academics. But before we proceed on to talk more about George Carlin, I do have to do my Patreon shoutouts, my thank yous to the latest individuals who have stepped up to support this show on a per-episode donation basis via Patreon. So big thank yous go out from me to Merrick, to Christopher, to Jeff, and to Nick for signing up to help out the Dangerous History Podcast over at patreon.com slash profcj. And for the rest of you, if you're not already a supporter through Patreon, perhaps you'll consider doing so. If you pledge to support this show, For any amount per episode, I will thank you by name on the next episode I record after you sign up. But if you pledge a minimum of a dollar per episode, just a buck, and of course, feel free to donate more if you're so inclined. But for a minimum of a buck per episode donation, you will have access to special bonus episodes through Patreon of the Dangerous History Podcast that are available nowhere else that I'm putting out there about every four to six weeks, roughly every month, sometimes month and a half. So if you've ever thought, man, I love the Dangerous History Podcast, I just wish I could help it out more and help it to get better and so on, and also at the same time, man, I wish I could have a little bit more in the way of Dangerous History Podcast episodes, well, patreon.com slash profcj is the solution to your problem. You can feel good about helping to support a show that you enjoy and at the same time also get a few extra doses of the show from time to time. I'm currently working on my third Patreon bonus episode, which will be on Operation Northwoods, which was a false flag plan to start a war between the U.S. and Cuba in the early 60s. Many people have heard of this, not that many people have really delved in the details, so I'm going to try to do that. So anyway, this show could really use your help. There are a variety of ways to help the show, not just Patreon, but that's a good one. And when you do that, you're helping the show on a per-episode basis, which is kind of cool. So if you enjoy the Dangerous History podcast, please consider supporting the show in any way you can. Now, on to George Carlin. Let's talk about his biography, who he was. So a lot of people know him. A lot of people know at least a little bit about his comedy. Uh Not as many people know about the guy's story, which is a very interesting life. Certainly has its ups and downs, has its goods and bads, but it's never particularly dull. His full name was George Dennis Patrick Carlin, which is literally one of the most Irish names I've ever heard. Other than perhaps the first name, which was a common name for English kings, right? But, uh, Dennis Patrick Carlin, quite Irish. Born into an Irish Catholic family in New York City in 1937. His parents were both fairly old parents. They were both in their forties. I believe his mother was in her early 40s and his father was in his late 40s when George was born. And their marriage was already on the rocks and had been for a while. In fact, according to Carlin's own memoir, Last Words, which was co-authored with author Tony Hendra and published the year after Carlin's death, according to Carlin's account, in Last Words, his parents conceived him during a ...bout of makeup sex as their marriage wavered on the brink of divorce. And uh, despite their Catholic faith, they actually almost had him aborted. Because between their advanced age for having a new baby and, and their marriage problems, they almost terminated the pregnancy. Carlin's parents, needless to say, had a very volatile relationship. George Carlin's father, Patrick, was apparently a very intelligent, articulate, charismatic guy... He was, for a while, very successful in the career world. He was actually an advertising executive for the Sun newspaper. But he was also physically abusive and had a drinking problem. Apparently, a frequent target of Patrick Carlin's abuse was George's older brother, Patrick Carlin Jr. According to George Carlin, his father's tool of choice for beating Patrick Jr. was a hard-heeled leather slipper. And uh, he could be quite vicious. Apparently, when uh, baby George came along, and I think Patrick was fairly old by that time, maybe around seven, if I recall, George's mother apparently did not want baby George to suffer the same fate of being beaten as Patrick Jr. was. And so it was part of the reason why just two months after George's birth, Mary walked out on Patrick Carlin Sr., which apparently it ended up being a very uh, difficult separation that required some police intervention to keep Patrick Sr. away and um, involve some court battles to get him to even uh, consent or acknowledge to any sort of divorce. I mean, it was just a mess. So George's mother, Mary, took both boys and then raised them on her own from them then onward. Now, George Carlin uh, speaks about his father's physical abuse ...of his brother in, in last words as follows, quote, "...my father, beaten by his father, was one of the many Americans who thought, and still do, that inflicting physical pain will persuade a child to act a certain way, beginning when they're, say, two, end quote And he described his father's treatment of Patrick Jr. as, quote, "...the grand American tradition of beating the shit out of someone weaker than you." End quote. Now, George's mother, Mary, according to George in last words, was also somewhat volatile, though usually not in a physical way herself. Carlin says his mother actually subscribed to the same parenting philosophy as his father, but that she, quote, knew how to delegate, end quote. Meaning that, for example, she sent Carlin's brother, Patrick Jr., to a boarding school that was big on corporal punishment, in order to basically have some strangers try to beat his brother into better behavior. Carlin says of this, quote, Wonderful logic. Five years of beatings by his father had produced a little monster, so more violence, this time at the hands of strangers, ought to straighten him out. Ah, the Irish. End quote. Mary could also be a domineering mother. In particular, she always had kind of aristocratic or elitist pretensions, that she tried to force on her children. This is how George Carlin describes it in last words, quote, part of my mother's strategy for advancing her life agenda and realizing her material dreams demanded careful control of the development of her children. I don't mean moral guidance or practical life advice, but a code that would make her look good and feel comfortable. She was obsessed with appearances, utterly dependent on the approval of the outside world, in particular that segment of society for whom she worked and that met her approval, the ruling class. End quote. Of course, anyone familiar with a lot of Carlin's material can probably see that the backlash against this superficiality and this trying to warm up to the power elite seems to have greatly influenced some of George Carlin's most biting and most humorous critiques of society and of the power elite. Interestingly, in light of Carlin's later success with the spoken word, his father actually won a national public speaking contest in 1935 and was an in-demand speaker in the New York area. Different groups and things would hire him to come in and speak to them. It's very interesting. Carlin also mentions his mother encouraging a love of language in him. His relationship with his mother is very complicated, to say the least. It has a lot of animosity and also a lot of appreciation of certain positive things. It's very, very interesting. George grew up in an area of Manhattan called Morningside Heights, which is also sometimes referred to as White Harlem. This is an area with a lot of New York City's most famous educational institutions, such as Columbia University and Teachers College, and the Manhattan School of Music, and at the time, Juilliard was also located there, although, as far as I know, its present location is no longer in that particular neighborhood. Young George attended church and school at Corpus Christi, which was probably one of the most progressive Catholic schools in America at that time. It actually didn't do report cards or grades. Um, I think they didn't do any corporal punishment, which is, you know, Totally contradicts the old nuns beating you for every little thing uh, experience that most people would have had in Catholic school in the 40s. And George says that the students there were actually encouraged to pursue learning for its own sake. But George says he got much of his real education on his own, on the streets and in the parks of his neighborhood. He writes in last words, quote, I started exploring early. I had a mile-square playground of colleges and churches and their grounds at my disposal. A thousand hallways, classrooms, labs, theaters, lounges, libraries, dorms, gyms, chapels, and lobbies, just asking to be terrorized by me and my playmates. Security, a more recent American obsession, was minimal, and a handful of small kids can scoot, scatter, disappear, and reappear with amazing ease. End quote. By age seven... Young George was using the subway to get all around New York City on his own. He was not a good student in school and actually never got beyond a ninth grade education. The main thing he says that he got from that experience of being in school was becoming the class clown, learning how to get laughs and attention from people, which, of course, is one of the things that obviously got him on the path to later becoming a professional comedian. And in homage to this, his uh, 1972 album was entitled Class Clown. He says that he engaged in the typical class clown stuff you find in elementary and middle school, like fart noises and things like this. But that he also developed a real knack for doing impressions of people, both like celebrities of the time period and also doing impressions of like teachers and uh, authority figures in school. When Carlin was in high school, he was kicked out of Cardinal Hayes High for a few after just a few semesters of attending and he briefly attended uh, somewhere else but he did not graduate high school He's, his education really only went through about ninth grade in 1954 at age 17 with of course his mother's permission to do so george carlin joined the u.s air force a surprising choice perhaps given a lot of his later material and his attitude towards the u.s government and the u.s military and its wars In fact, in his chapter about joining the military in last words, George Carlin writes, quote, I don't feel about war the way we're supposed to, the way we're told to by the United States government, a large part of which is the United States military whose business is war. So the military is telling us how to feel about war so they can stay in business. Something is fucked up here, end quote. Now, of course, As you would expect, his ideology wasn't all worked out at age 17 anyway. But even so, he already had a clear troublemaker, anti-authoritarian streak just sort of naturally in his personality. So it still might seem like an odd choice for him to join the Air Force. But here's his basic rationale, which actually makes a lot of sense given the circumstances of the time. The draft was active at the time, even though this was after the Korean War and long before Vietnam really got going. The draft was actually nonstop from the late 1940s through the early 1970s. And according to Carlin, at the time, young men often weren't getting drafted until they were in their early 20s, which, of course, is a lot more disruptive to your life and whatever career you might be starting or whatever than to simply be drafted at 18. So a lot of young men were volunteering at 17 or 18 years old to, you know, do a few years military service, get it out of the way so that they wouldn't have the sort of Damocles hanging over them of possibly getting a getting a career going, maybe even getting married and then suddenly at age twenty one being drafted. Also, it was common to volunteer for the Air Force as a way to avoid getting drafted into the army and ending up as an infantryman and with a lot, you know, tougher of a a job and a lot worse conditions than joining the Air Force. This is how Carlin described it many years later. Quote, the Air Force seemed a pretty good deal. You could be a part of a group whose job it was to go out and drop bombs on brown and yellow people. Then come home, take a shower, and catch a movie. Plus, my brother was in it, and they had cool blue uniforms, not that puky khaki shit, and a lot of off-base privileges. The way it came down to me, the Air Force sounded a lot like a country club. End quote. Carlin says that during his time in the military, he always tended to socialize the most with the black airmen as he found them a lot more fun to hang out with and he got along a lot better with them than he did with most of the white guys he met in the military now carlin uh, rather cleverly i think got out of a lot of the worst aspects of basic training by volunteering to participate in a medical experiment that was being done studying the spread of germs George and the other guys who are participating in this study were exposed to colds and other mild viruses so that the Air Force could study their spread. And it wasn't one of those human experiments that was going on in the military at the same time of, you know, dosing you with lethal agents and whatever. Apparently, this was a pretty mild thing to participate in. And in return for basically allowing themselves to be exposed to colds the guys in this experiment were exempted from a lot of duties and requirements that everyone else had to do. Carlin put it this way, quote, we got out of a lot of duty. We didn't even have to get up in the morning for Reveille. We guinea pigs had standing permission to fall out if we wanted or even just fuck off. Early morning, still dark out September, October, upstate New York. We did a lot of fucking off, end quote. George had already begun smoking marijuana before he joined the military, and once he was in, it didn't take him long to figure out how to get pot in the military. In fact, one of his sources was a guy who was from his neighborhood that he actually used to buy pot from years before he joined the military. George also, during this time period, would steal records, musical records, from his base's BX, and he did so, by the way, on the orders of his flight commander— and overall, he sums up his basic training time as, quote, serving our country by smoking pot, stealing records and giving each other colds, end quote. Now, after completing this grueling basic training, George Carlin was trained to work on the bombing and navigation equipment on the then new and state of the art B-47 Stratojet bomber. But as you might expect from George Carlin he w- was constantly getting into trouble in the military and didn't fit, al- fit in very well with its you know rather authoritarian top-down sort of structure. Over the course of his years in the Air Force George Carlin was court-martialed 3 times and received many more smaller punishments. And and most of his reprimands including his court-martials were simply for uh, mouthing off to superiors. Or mouthing off even to people who weren't his superiors, but who, you know, were doing some sort of duty where you weren't supposed to talk back to him, like, you know, mouthing off to someone who was performing guard duty on the base or something like that. While he was stationed at a base in Louisiana, Carlin began working as a disc jockey with a local station, and apparently the Air Force was kind of happy to get rid of him, so they gave him off-base privileges and allowed him to spend a lot of his time actually working as a disc jockey even though he was still in the military at the time. In last words, George Carlin writes the following about what was going on with his military career after his last court-martial. I still had a year to go. I'd signed on for four years of active duty. Then you automatically had to do four more years in the reserves. They had your ass for eight years, but they didn't want mine. Carlin didn't get any sort of standard discharge, honorable or dishonorable. Instead... They decided to classify him as a 3916, which, according to Carlin, was sort of like a no-fault divorce. They basically just didn't want him anymore, not even in the reserves, so he was discharged after three years, one month, with full GI rights and everything. I don't know if this procedure still exists but apparently even back then it was a little known like uh almost like a technicality that they the Air Force guys were just like we we just want to get rid of this dude <laughs> and he doesn't want to be here that very much anymore either so let's get him out right no fault divorce. Now once he was out he continued to work as a DJ initially up in the Boston area and uh, there he met Jack Burns in 1959. Carlin and Burns uh worked together in radio In Texas for a short while as well, and then in early 1960, they decided to form a comedy duo and go to California to make it big in show business. Carlin gives Burns a lot of credit for moving him politically leftward during this time period. In August of 1960, George met Brenda Hosbrook at a club in Dayton, Ohio where Brenda was working as a mater D. They hit it off and got married in June of 1961, which was less than a year after meeting. Carlin and Burns had modest success on the nightclub circuit and recorded an album together, but by 1962, George Carlin was ready to call it quits on the duo with Jack Burns. In last words, he claims that his real reason was that he really didn't want to put his best efforts into a duo. He wanted to put his best efforts into a solo act. So apparently the breakup was amicable and the two guys remain good friends. In 1963, George and Brenda had a daughter whom they named Kelly, and she would be their only child. Increasingly, in the kind of early to mid-60s, George was hanging out with counterculture types, with musicians and those sorts of people, the sort of early proto-hippies, the people who were kind of the bridge between the beatniks and the hippies. George would do more standard comedy, in the nightclubs for mainstream audiences, but then he would also perform in the burgeoning counterculture clubs where he would often perform more radical sorts of jokes. In 1963, Carlin relocated back to New York and began performing at the Café Agogo, which was becoming a countercultural hotspot. He was increasingly, during this time period, influenced and inspired by Lenny Bruce, especially how radical and provocative Lenny Bruce was. In last words, Carlin describes his affinity for Bruce as follows, quote, Lenny was one of the very few comics, perhaps the only one, I sought out and felt comfortable hanging with. I never had a circle of friends in the comedy biz. I always felt alien, not a part of them. Not that I was different or better, I was just a part. They had some common bond that didn't include or interest me. A competitiveness that I was very uncomfortable with. I wasn't a compulsive entertainer. I could always think on my feet, but I never was quick around the kind of people who dominate a table. I was a product of ideas, not ad libs. In the end, I was a loner, a loner and happy to be alone. I worked alone. I wrote alone, end quote. Again and again in his memoir, Last Words, Carlin is the outsider. I can identify with this a lot myself. I mean, at different stages in my life, I've pursued a variety of different skills and, and uh pursued development in different fields. I have pursued visual arts, also music for a long time. And then, of course, eventually got into history. And along the way, I've dabbled in other fields as well. And I have to say, I have never been able to feel like I was on the same page as the other people in any of those fields, even in cases where, you know, I was I was following those skills or those areas of knowledge and was becoming fairly adept at them. I still never fit in. you know, I was a musician who never really felt like I was on the same page as other musicians. I was an artist who never really felt like I was there with the artists um, with the same sorts of mindset and whatever. I always sort of felt like everybody in a field for the most part, is like a self-parody, and um Carlin never said that about about showbiz, people. Explicitly, but I got the impression that he sort of had that feeling as well. So I've just always felt like an outsider everywhere I go. When I did sports, I was too intellectual to get along with a lot of the athletes that I encountered there. And when I did artistic or intellectual stuff, I wasn't artistic or intellectual enough in my temperament. And the same thing with academia. I never have gotten along easily with academia. So anyway, Carlin definitely seems to have had an analogous relationship to many of the people in showbiz. Carlin had his first significant comedy hit, for lack of a better term, on The Merv Griffin Show in 1965 with a piece he called The Indian Sergeant. And by the way, it's one of the many George Carlin clips I will link to in the show notes for this episode. This piece was such a hit that Carlin later did many different variations of it, different kinds of sergeants including um, one of the last ones that I know of that he did uh, written in his best-selling book, Braindroppings, in the 1990s. He has one in there called The Primitive Sergeant that's like almost like a caveman who's giving advice to other cavemen before a battle or something like that. It's pretty funny stuff. Now, this success with The Indian Sergeant led to more appearances on The Merv Griffin Show, wherein Carlin debuted other characters that he eventually became known for, including Al Sleet, the hippy-dippy weatherman. Carlin appeared on other variety shows in the 1960s, including, among others, The Mike Douglas Show, Craft Summer Music Hall, The Ed Sullivan Show, which, by the way, he particularly hated, and also The Tonight Show, on which he eventually became a frequent guest. Despite getting more and more notoriety by the mid-60s, and despite getting pretty good at the basic craft of just making people laugh and telling jokes, Carlin felt during this time that he wasn't being himself, or living up to his potential, and in last words he says of this period, quote, It began boring in on me how untrue I was being to myself. Something was seriously wrong. I was in the wrong place with the wrong people for the wrong reasons. End quote. According to Carlin, it was around this time, the mid-1960s, that his wife developed a drinking problem, and Carlin himself smoked a lot of pot and also drank, though... Based on what he says in last words, I don't think he drank as much as his wife did. However, a little while later, um, definitely sometime by the 70s, he was doing a lot of cocaine. By the end of the 1960s, George really did feel that his comedy was becoming a bit stale, though he did one kind of dangerous bit. Um, It really seems innocuous when you look at it. But um, it was more dangerous, perhaps, than he realized at the time in 1969, when on the Jackie Gleason show, he made fun of FBI director J. Edgar Hoover. He actually poked fun at Hoover pretty gently, but it was enough to get an FBI file started on him. You know, an FBI file on George Carlin, because he gently kind of made fun of J. Edgar Hoover. George Carlin discovered that the FBI had a file on him uh, years later, thanks to a Freedom of Information Act uh, release and Carlin's FBI file described him as, quote, one George Carlin, an alleged comedian, end quote, and said that, quote, the subject of Carlin's material was the FBI and Mr. Hoover and that his treatment of both was shoddy and in shockingly bad taste, end quote. The first letter in his file concludes by Stating after it describes Carlin as this alleged comedian who was so uh, bad taste in his treatment of Hoover, the letter then concludes by stating that Jackie Gleason and his people on, on his show didn't agree with Carlin on his treatment of J. Edgar Hoover. And the letter says that the FBI's Miami field office people, quote, are of the opinion that Gleason holds the director and the FBI in the highest esteem and that Gleason himself thinks that the director is one of the greatest men who has ever lived. End quote. Now, whether that opinion of Hoover on the part of Gleason is actually true or not, and I've not looked into it, so I don't know. It still is is funny. It's an interesting and rather typical uh, bit of kissing Hoover's ass in an official FBI report, which that sort of thing went on all the time. His own uh, agents and and field offices and whatever uh, in their reports that they knew he was going to read would make little ass kissing comments like that. Your tax dollars at work back in the day. Speaking of ass, in 1969, George Carlin was fired from performing at the Frontier Hotel in Vegas for simply saying the word ass during a bit in which he joked about Irish guys like himself having no ass. 1969 was also the year Carlin first tried LSD, which he referred to as, quote, a profound turning point and seminal experience, end quote. This is also the time period, perhaps not surprisingly, not coincidentally, during which he started to more openly and blatantly embrace the counterculture. Previously, he'd sympathized with it, had socialized with, you know, some of the musicians and performers who were part of it, had hung out at and sometimes performed in some of the counterculture type clubs. But he'd kept his overall straight-laced, short-haired, clean-shaven appearance for the sake of his showbiz career, which he thought for a while was headed toward movie stardom. That was really what he had in his head for a lot of the early to mid-60s, was, you know, get some success performing comedy and then eventually become a movie star. But around 1969, 1970, this is when he started things like having a ponytail and a beard and dressing in very different outfits than the standard straight-laced suit that he'd always worn previously when performing, in which, you know, back then, if you look, was standard for comedians to wear all the time, a suit. Carlin also started to be much more open about his social and political views. Surprisingly, perhaps, uh, one of the few people who supported this was his mother, who, in a letter from this time period, actually encouraged George to be true to himself. In addition to his appearances performing comedy, he started to also make appearances on sort of more serious talk shows, such as Virginia Graham and David Frost, Increasingly, he was doing more shows in coffee shops and folk clubs, places like that, and fewer and fewer in the big mainstream nightclubs. Initially, his decision to be more authentic in his comedy really hurt his, per- his, uh, really hurt his personal finances, though obviously in the long term it made him much more of a success and more of a legend. But from about 1969 to 1971, his family really fell on difficult financial times. And of course, this also had personal repercussions as well, as it always does when a family takes a serious hit to his income. I think I remember reading somewhere that his income during these years, kind of the last bit of the 60s and the first few years of the 70s, that his income declined by like 80 or 90 percent because he was no longer uh, willing and able to play the mainstream game. His 1972 album FM and AM was sort of a turning point as it began to show some of the more authentic, unique voice that Carlin became known for later in his career. It contained a piece called Shoot in which Carlin riffs about the word shit and its many different meanings, its literal meanings, its figurative meanings, uh, the, the cases in which it's more considered more okay to say it versus those in which it's not. This is a bit that Carlin himself admits was a real milestone along the path that eventually led to his more famous seven words you can't say on television bit that probably is one of his most notorious routines. By the way, if you've never heard the seven words, I'll link to at least one variation of it. He, he performed it in different ways over the years as he sort of added to it and whatever, but um, the the original seven words, in case you're curious and you've never heard the routine, are shit Piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits. And while you can't say them on television, at least not network television, um, as you just heard, you can say those words all on podcasts, as long as you list them as explicit in iTunes, which I of course do. Now, both "shoot" from FM and AM, and the later seven words you can't say on television, are really brilliant analyses and satirizations of. The peculiarities of the English language, assuming you're not somebody who's knee-jerk, easily offended simply by words. Speaking of seven words, it was featured on the album Class Clown, which became a big hit for George Carlin the following year in 1973. Class Clown also contained some of his most blatant rips into religion up till that point in his career. Later that same year, he cranked out yet another album, this one called Operation Fool, fool spelled f-o-o-l-e which he characterized later as kind of a continuation of a lot of the ideas and trends of class clown now all three of those albums in the early 70s were not just creative turning points for carlin they ended up ultimately being rather successful all three of them fm and am class clown and occupation fool ended up going gold and fm and am won a grammy So things had really turned around for Carlin in terms of his career and his finances by sort of following more his authentic voice. And he was making more money than ever. He even bought a jet. However, a lot of his money was going into his cocaine habit and going into other frivolous things. I mean, you could certainly argue the jet was, I think he himself in later years even kind of saw that as being over the top and and stupid. By the way, speaking of seven dirty words, we should point out that the seven dirty words bit eventually led to a Supreme Court free speech case. In 1973, a man complained to the FCC after hearing a version of this routine being played on the radio in New York City. Now, the radio show warned about the language before the routine started and said, hey, we're going to play something that's got some explicit words, so, you know, change the channel or turn it off if you don't want to hear it. But this guy who was listening to it, who supposedly anyway was with his kid, didn't change the station and then sure enough was offended by what he heard. Now this ended up turning into a case that, uh, in 1978 was known as FCC versus Pacifica Foundation in which by a five to four margin the Supreme Court ruled that the FCC could in fact prohibit certain types of speech on the radio. Interestingly, the man who made the complaint was not just some random Joe. He was a guy named John Douglas who was part of a watchdog group called Morality and Media. So it wasn't like it was a, an organic case of an average Joe accidentally hearing some stuff with his kid that he didn't want to hear. It was, you know, more, more like the case of a guy who's going around looking to be offended. As the 70s wore on, Carlin and his wife's uh, substance uses both increased until in mid-1975, after some very bad events, uh, Brenda quit drinking and drugs. And Carlin says that he himself decreased his drug and alcohol consumption during that time period, although he did not stop it entirely. In October of 1975, George Carlin hosted the very first episode of Saturday Night Live. He performed a little bit of stand-up comedy, but he actually didn't participate in any of the sketches in the show. He refused to do so because he was very insecure about his acting ability. His few acting gigs he'd gotten previously hadn't gone very well, so uh, he he was very, very, you know, self-conscious and refused. It was part of his condition of of, uh, hosting the show that he not be acting in any of the sketches. He's actually the only host in SNL history who's ever hosted an episode without performing, it, performing in any of the sketches of the episode he's hosting in. By the way, the next time he hosted SNL, which was nine years later in 1984, he actually did participate in a few of the sketches. In the mid-70s, Carlin also became a frequent guest on The Tonight Show. In 1977, Big Milestone, George Carlin filmed his very first special for a new cable network called HBO he would go on to do 13 more HBO specials over the course of the rest of his life, and he became known for them uh, probably above all else in the latter part of his career. He would usually do one every two or three years. He ended up really liking uh, working with HBO, and the reason was it allowed him to speak to a large TV audience, but it allowed him to do so without all of the restrictions and censorship that he normally had to deal with when he was working with network television. In 1978, Carlin had a mild heart attack, and it was a portent of things to come. He would continue to have heart trouble for the rest of his life, had several more uh, heart attacks and heart surgeries as well over the next few decades. Carlin's comedy in the late 70s was increasingly geared towards what's known as observational humor. While his act would continue to have observational humor pieces in it for the rest of his career... Harlan said that in the late 70s, he really went too far on it, really got too fixated on just that one type of comedy. He even compared it to a form of comedic navel-gazing and said that this late 70s period was the second period of stagnation in his career. In addition to kind of stagnating in his actual stand-up comedy, he was starting to run into management, financial, and tax issues. He had apparently the people managing him... Uh, and and he himself he accepts some of the blame had not done a good job keeping track of all of his taxes and everything, and so he ended up in trouble with the IRS. He'd also done things like buying the jet that probably weren't the smartest things to do financially. And in addition, he sunk a bunch of money into a film project that was going to be called the Illustrated George Carlin, which never came to fruition. So by the end of the seventies, again, his life and career were uh, having some hard times, and he credits a guy named Jerry Hamza with turning around all these things. Hamza's an interesting guy. I'd never heard of him before reading George Carlin's memoir. Hamza was the son of a top country music promoter of the time, and he was coming up into that business, but he was sort of kind of turning away from the country music industry. At the same time, this guy, Jerry Hamza, was a a big fan of George Carlin and had sort of become friends with him, and in 1980, he became his manager. And I believe, if I remember right, Carlin was his only his only client, at least for a long time. Carlin credits Hamza with simultaneously helping his financial problems and sort of helping to get his overall career and creativity back on track. Carlin's next project was a half-live, half-studio album called A Place for My Stuff, and the title track became one of his classic routines. It's one of his more sort of cutesy observational pieces, but it's it's really funny. His next HBO special entitled Carlin at Carnegie also became a classic and a hit. Carlin described it as the beginning of another revitalization of his career and his creativity. From this point onward, all of Carlin's comedy albums would just simply be the audio from his HBO specials. In 1982, Carlin had a second heart attack, a, a bit more uh, a bit worse of one than his first one while he was at a baseball game. Now, over the course of the 80s, Carlin was particularly fired up by his opposition to the Reagan administration, so his comedy increasingly started to take on more of a political dimension than it had for a while. His acting career began to improve, or get going, finally for the first time in his life in a significant way in 1987, with a role in the film Outrageous Fortune that was fairly well received, and of course in 1989 he was Rufus in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which was uh, destined for the annals of film greatness and which was most likely the very first time that a young future Dangerous History podcaster with the initial C and J first encountered George Carlin. While film never became a major part of his career, he continued to have decent film roles uh, for the rest of his life. Later film credits included, among others, roles in three Kevin Smith films – dogma jay and silent bob strike back and jersey girl he never became the leading man he had aspired to be earlier in life but he gave solid performances supporting performances in a variety of films and even included a few dramas in addition to his typical comedy roles now as the 80s turned into the 90s george carlin who was still no fan of the political right began to have problems with the left as well he was increasingly bothered by the left's hypocrisy and their willingness to try to control thought and expression just as much as the right wanted to. Probably the fact that by this time more of America's left were yuppies and limousine liberals didn't help Carlin's opinion of them either. In last words, Carlin writes, quote, I was beginning to find a lot of my positions clashed. The habits of liberals, their automatic language, their knee-jerk responses to certain issues, deserved the epithets the right-wing stuck them with. Here they were, banding together in packs so that I could predict what they were going to say about some event or conflict, and it wasn't even out of their mouths yet. I was very uncomfortable with that. Liberal orthodoxy was as repugnant to me as conservative orthodoxy." And I have to say, one of the things I really appreciate about him is that, especially in the last couple of decades of his career, he really was an equal opportunity basher. One minute he'd be attacking the conservative morality police crowd, and the next minute he'd be dishing it out to the PC left in equal measure. And there are plenty of comics who are great at making fun of the right, but there are very few who could be equally harsh at ripping on the left. Carlin responded negatively to the first major wave of political correctness in the 90s. I'm sure he'd be repulsed by this latest and even more extreme wave of PC-ness even more. And it's really a shame that he's not around to talk about it. I would would love to hear Carlin's take on this recent, you know, new wave of of PC police. But, eh, at least South Park has been picking up the slack this season with PC principle and all that. I'm sure many of you have seen that. In the 1990s HBO specials, Carlin did some of his best work of all time, both in the opinion of fans and of himself. In 1990, his special, Doing It Again, began with him riffing on the fact that, thanks to speech codes, he wasn't sure what he was allowed to say anymore. And a lot of what he says is clearly aimed at the piece he left. A strong contender for my all time favorite George Carlin special, and I think many other fans of his would agree with me on this. Jammin' in New York, recorded at Madison Square Garden in April of 1992. In fact, it was apparently George's favorite, too. In last words, he says of it this, quote, Jammin' in New York has always been my favorite HBO show, but it was more than just a favorite. It lifted me up to a new plateau, a good plateau. It became my personal best, the one I had to beat, the template for future HBOs in terms of craft, artistry, and risk-taking, end quote. Keep in mind, this is just a year after the first Gulf War, and he opens this act with his piece, Rockets and Penises in the Persian Gulf. That is a ballsy move, and it's still one of my all-time favorite George Carlin bits, and it still contains some better analysis of U.S. foreign policy and people's responses to it than you get in a lot of academia. obviously, he simplifies some things and goes over the top on some things for comedic effect, but I think his overall points that he's making stand very well. Of this particular special, Jammin' in New York, George Carlin later wrote this, quote, I was beginning to realize something. I had a powerful new tool for my toolkit, though I've only made sparing use of it since. Getting laughs all the time wasn't my only responsibility, my responsibility was to engage the audience's mind for 90 minutes, get laughs, of course, dazzle them from time to time with form, craft, verbal fireworks, but above all, engage their minds, end quote. In, in this part of Last Words where he's talking about this, he discusses his bit, The Planet is Fine, which, by the way, is one of the many George Carlin bits that I'll link to via the show notes page for this episode. The Planet is Fine was the last segment of Jammin' in New York, and it's an early example of this. It's a piece that's not primarily for laughs, though it does get some. Segments like this that show up in a lot of his later specials as well would go for long amounts of time in between laughs. And yet, he would still get applause, the audience still loved it, and some of these pieces become some of the later, you know, fan favorites that he's the most known for. As Carlin himself put it, quote, as long as I kept them interested and engaged and entertained, not bringing them to laughter all the time, but sometimes to wonder. When I could see from their faces, they were thinking, whoa, what a nice thing he did there. So long as I did that, the contract between us was fulfilled. Laughter is not the only proof of success. Boy, what a liberating recognition that was, end quote. Now, in addition to his uh, revitalized comedy act which was arguably at the peak of its creativity and authenticity carlin continued to do other things in show business on the side some of them kind of surprising for example between 1991 and 1995 george carlin many of you may know starred as mr conductor in the children's tv show shining time station on pbs where he replaced ringo Starr, who had been mr conductor in the show's first season Apparently, he enjoyed this role, and he appreciated how different it was from almost all other aspects of his career. In 1994, he also experimented with the sitcom arena with the George Carlin Show, which premiered on Fox Television. The series made 27 episodes before being canceled in late 1995. In his memoirs, George Carlin expressed very mixed feelings about the show. On the one hand, he said he loved most of the people that he worked with on it especially a lot of the other actors. But he complains that the showrunner of the series, a guy named Sam Simon, according to George Carlin, very difficult to work with. And in addition, Carlin himself didn't do very well in the group setting that you have to deal with when you're writing for television. He preferred writing on his own without having to deal with other people's preferences and other people trying to Monday morning quarterback him. So for you know a variety of reasons, the show didn't really catch on. And I have to admit, I have i think I've only ever watched one episode of it and I wasn't terribly impressed. But, you know, I don't see sitcoms as being George Carlin's forte anyway. Turn the man loose on his own with just a microphone and a stage. Now, one place, though, that he did start to have some success was uh, in writing. In 1997, he published a book called Brain Droppings, which became a bestseller and is one of my favorites. It's written in such a way that it's almost like his act. There's just segments of different types of funny stuff, and, and then just sort of observational stuff, and then uh, social commentary. And it became a big hit. That same year, George's wife Brenda died of cancer. A year later, he married a woman named Sally Wade, to whom he remained married for the rest of his life. Carlin continued to work right on up through what would become the end of his life. And he was increasingly recognized as the comedy icon and innovator that he truly was. In 2001, he won a Lifetime Achievement Award at the American Comedy Awards, for example. In 2005, he made Life is Worth Losing, his 13th HBO special. A lot of the topics in this one related to his increasing lack of hope for the human species as a whole. This increasing pessimism and even nihilism, but of course expressed in such an entertaining and funny way that you can't help but be taken in by it. In early 2008, he made his final HBO special, It's Bad For You. And in June of that year, just a few months after doing It's Bad For You, Carlin died of heart failure at age 71. The John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts posthumously awarded him its Mark Twain Prize for American humor in November of the same year. So the guy had a hell of a life and career with some good, some bad, a lot of ups, a lot of downs. But you certainly can't say he didn't do it his way. And you certainly can't say that the guy didn't eventually become a master of his particular craft. Now, there are a lot of recurring themes and important uh, stylistic elements in his work, and I'll just dip a toe in here, so to speak, because of of time. But um, he typically said his comedy was divided into three categories. Now, of course, there would be some overlap and some blurring around the edges, but the three basic categories of his comedy were uh, number one, things having to do with language and words and wordplay and things like that. He was very good at doing that. And then, of course, he would have what he sometimes called the little world, by which he meant observational humor, little things from daily life, things about the human experience, little things we all have to deal with and funny takes on that. And then the third category of his comedy would be the big world. These are the big issues, politics, religion, society, culture, all that stuff. Now, words and wordplay could sometimes be gentle fun poking and things like that or it could be more aggressive and even sort of bleeding into big world a little bit exposing things like hypocrisy euphemism double speak so some varied examples of bits by him dealing with wordplay probably the most famous seven dirty words but also there are milder ones like love and regards And uh, one of my favorites, and I can't remember if this came from Jammin' in New York or from another special, he has one called Euphemisms that I particularly like.
0: We were using that soft language, that language that takes the life out of life. And it is a function of time. It does keep getting worse. Give you another example. Sometime during my life, sometime during my life, toilet paper became bathroom tissue. I wasn't notified of this. No one asked me if I agreed with it. It just happened. Toilet paper became bathroom tissue. Sneakers became running shoes. False teeth became dental appliances. Medicine became medication. Information became directory assistance. The dump became the landfill. Car crashes became automobile accidents. Partly cloudy became partly sunny. (laughs) Motels became motor lodges. House trailers became mobile homes. Used cars became previously owned transportation. Room service became guest room dining. And constipation became occasional irregularity.
1: The little world observational humor, I have to say, some of it I I don't find as interesting as... words and wordplay stuff for the big worlds but there are still some real gems to be found here and probably two of the better known observational humor sorts of pieces are a place for my stuff and football and baseball the football and baseball maybe you could also categorize that as wordplay to some extent as well now in terms of the big world this is where george carlin was the most edgy and it's also where a lot of his most loved pieces by fans can be found. You can find him ripping on religion. You can also find him ripping on what I would call the power elite or the oligarchy or something like that. I don't think he used those particular terms, but he clearly was thinking along those lines. He spoke about the power elite or the oligarchs in ways that were far more accurate than most celebrities and entertainers would. And it's clear that he'd actually done some real research and reading and thinking far beyond what the typical showbiz lefty does who makes criticisms in vague terms about the man and the system and the corporations Carlin complained a lot about a lot of those things, but from the way he talked about them, he had a much more penetrating analysis. It was much more obvious that he really knew what he was talking about than your typical kind of Hollywood lefty celebrity.
2: But there's a reason. There's a reason. There's a reason for this. There's a reason education sucks. And it's the same reason that it will never, ever, ever be fixed. It's never going to get any better. Don't look for it. Be happy with what you got. Because the owners of this country don't want that. I'm talking about the real owners now. The real owners, the big wealthy business interests that control things and make all the important decisions. Forget the politicians. The politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. You have no choice. You have owners. They own you. Well, we know what they want. They want more for themselves and less for everybody else. But I'll tell you what they don't want. They don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. That's against their interest.
1: One of the things that Carlin did a lot in some of his later big world sorts of comedy pieces is exposing the empty ritual and pageantry that is american elections and american politics according to carlin himself the last time he voted in his entire life was way back in 1972 when he voted for george mcgovern against richard nixon and from then on, on more than one occasion he spoke about voting being a waste of time and uh, had a whole routine that he did about why he doesn't vote He had a lot of criticism of American culture, of uh, consumerism, and all these sorts of things. And a lot of this stuff, when you listen to it, it's really him saying stuff about these topics that a lot of people who are intelligent at least occasionally think to themselves, but that almost no one has the guts to say out loud. And I think this is clearly part of his appeal and why his fans have such affection for him is it's like he's giving voice to things that many of us have thought, but have just never said and certainly have never said in as articulate and funny of a way as Carlin could. Now, there's a misanthropy that gets more marked towards his last few HBO specials, his misanthropy and sometimes almost nihilism in a lot of ways done in a very humorous fashion. Of course, actually, in a lot of ways, reminds me of the early 20th century writer H.L. Mencken. And I don't know if Carlin was familiar with Mencken or not, but the two guys have a very similar sense of humor and critique of society in a lot of ways. And both have this, at the end of the day, sort of, hey, there's really no hope, it's not going to get fixed, but hey, we can still poke fun at it along the way sort of attitude. Which is simultaneously pessimistic and yet kind of playful and fun. But here's the interesting part, and I might say a little bit more about this in a moment. George Carlin wasn't a complete misanthrope because he loved individual human beings, including his fans. But he hated groups, aggregates, and collectives. Now, before I wrap up, I just want to speak a little bit more about George Carlin's effects on me because they actually were profound for a simple stand-up comedian. I mean, it's more than you might expect. First off, I don't claim to be even remotely as funny as George Carlin. But nonetheless, I don't think that one has to be a practitioner of a particular art in order to be touched and influenced by someone else who is a master of that art. It may not always come through in the podcast. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. You be you be the judge. But I think definitely in my teaching and my in-person public speaking that I've done, in a lot of ways, I'm very influenced by Carlin in terms of style and communication strategies. Even though, again, I'm the first to say I'm not as funny as him. But I will say I think I'm probably funnier than most historians Now, in terms of ideology, I think Carlin did have an effect on me, even though his ideology is sometimes hard to nail down. One minute he'd be bashing the right, the next minute he's bashing the left, but of course, you can't quite make him a doctrinaire libertarian anarchist either, even though he kind of is. I have to say, as a youngster, I found that fairness and that honesty of of attacking both the left and the right refreshing in a world where most people are just hacks For one political side or the other of mainstream politics and where they correctly, in most cases, point out the problems of one side of the political spectrum, but then turn a blind eye or make excuses for all the bad things that are on their side. George Carlin's unwillingness to give any slack to any faction of the power elite was just, to me, a breath of fresh air when I encountered it. Throughout his life, he referred to himself as a man of the left, and he frequently lampooned and attacked the conservative right. But especially in his last few decades, he was increasingly vocal in his criticisms of the standard American mainstream left. Especially, like I said before, that block that really became dominated by hypocritical PC yuppies. And, you know, no longer was it the honest countercultural types from the 60s. It was these hypocritical PC yuppies. Now, on many occasions, George Carlin actually did, especially later in life, refer to himself as an anarchist. He criticized the concept of private property on occasion, so that might make him seem to be sort of a left anarchist. But on the other hand, he mostly was focused on the abuses of corporatism when he really was talking about that stuff. And on the other hand, he said many things that were profoundly pro-individual and anti-collectivist. So in some ways, at least... He was an individualist anarchist, I would argue, even though he never wanted to categorize himself rigidly into any label. Now, I'm going to read you just a a segment of the preface to the book Braindroppings, in which you get a sense of this individualism, and also along the way, a little bit of his uh, misanthropy. George Carlin in Braindroppings, quote, I'm happy to tell you there is very little in this world that I believe in. Listening to the comedians who comment on political, social, and cultural issues— I notice most of their material reflects an undying belief that somehow things were better once and that with just a little effort we could set them right again. They're looking for solutions and rooting for particular results, and I think that necessarily limits the tone and substance of what they say. They're talented and funny people, but they're nothing more than cheerleaders attached to a specific, wished-for outcome. I don't feel so confined. I frankly don't give a fuck how it all turns out in this country, or anywhere else for that matter. I think the human game was up a long time ago, when the high priests and traitors took over, and now we're just playing out the string. And that is, of course, precisely what I find so amusing, the slow circling of the drain by a once-promising species, and the sappy, ever-more-desperate belief in this country that there is actually some sort of American dream, which has merely been misplaced. The decay and disintegration of this culture is astonishingly amusing if you are emotionally detached from it. I have always viewed it from a safe distance, knowing I don't belong. It doesn't include me, and it never has. No matter how you care to define it, I do not identify with the local group. Planet, species, race, nation, state, religion, party, union, club, association, neighborhood improvement committee. I have no interest in any of it. I love and treasure individuals as I meet them. I loathe and despise the groups they identify with and belong to, end quote. And in a similar vein, in his memoir, Last Words, in the second to last chapter of the book, he talks a little bit about this stuff as well. Here are a few excerpts strung together from that. Quote, an audience is the only group I can tolerate because the audience wouldn't be a group if it wasn't for me. Outside of my audience, groups repel me because for the sake of group thought, they kill individuality. That wonderful human oneness. People are wonderful, one at a time. But as soon as individuals begin to clump, as soon as they begin to clot, they change. Groups of three, five, ten, fifteen, suddenly we have special little hats. We have armbands. We have a marching song, a secret handshake, and a list of people we don't agree with. Next we have target practice and plan the things we have to take care of Friday night. The ideal grouping for human beings is one. The larger the group, the more toxic, the more of your beauty as an individual you have to surrender for the sake of group thought. My affection for people as individuals, and the fact that I identify with them, doesn't extend to the structures they've built, the terrible job they've done of organizing themselves, the fake values that supposedly hold society together. Bullshit is the glue of our society. I love anarchy." End quote. Now, that doesn't exactly sound like a typical anarcho-communist to me. Despite his occasional criticisms of private property, Carlin was clearly an anti-collectivist. He was a comedian. He never claimed to be a political scientist or philosophical guru. So I, for one, don't really care that he never put together some grand, unified ideology. That wasn't his job. That wasn't what he was doing. What he was doing was making people laugh at the pillars of society that you're never supposed to question, let alone laugh at. George Carlin definitely had a lot of imperfections, particularly as a family man. He was not a model husband or father in a lot of ways. And like many creative people, including many comedians, he had a lot of psychological issues, many of which, of course, went back to childhood, and some of which he dealt with using drugs and alcohol for many years. He was certainly a better husband and father than his own father had been, though admittedly that's not setting the bar very high. He had a very flawed relationship with his wife, Brenda, and for a while, at least, not a great relationship with his daughter. For example, while she was still very young, Kelly often had to witness drug and alcohol-fueled fights between her parents. So, again, when I say somebody, I I label them somewhat tongue-in-cheek, I admit, as as a DHP hero. That does not mean that I agree with everything they ever said or did or think that we should emulate them or that they're a model of perfection. Nobody is. But it means that on balance, I think there are more admirable qualities than there are bad things about this person. I still think that by making people laugh and at the same time encouraging them to think and to ask difficult questions, he did more harm than good in the grand scheme of things. And I think he did far more good and far less harm than pretty much any president or other world leader you can think of. George Carlin used humor to entertain, but he also used it as a weapon to speak truth to power in ways that few entertainers have had the ability or the courage to do. And for that, and for the influence he had on me as an individual, I have to award him a coveted spot in the collection of exceptional individuals known as DHP heroes. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Make sure to check out my website, profcj.org that's profcj.org, to find the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While there, you can also email subscribe to the website over in the right-hand side. You'll see a place to enter your email address, and if you sign up there, you'll simply get an email alert every time I post something new to my website. I promise you won't get any junk or spam or anything like that from me. For any correspondence, please feel free to email me at the email address profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with and follow me and the show on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can subscribe to the podcast in a variety of ways, including iTunes and Stitcher. If you like the show, there are multiple ways you can help it out. One simply is to spread the word about it any way you have available to you, whether it's social media, online discussion postings, word of mouth, or whatever, to people that you think might like the show. Also, please consider leaving a review or a rating in venues such as iTunes or Stitcher. There are also multiple ways you can help out the show financially. One is to go to patreon.com slash profcj, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash p-r-o-f-c-j, and sign up to support the show on a per-episode basis. If you do that for any amount, I will thank you by name in the next episode that I record. And if you've signed up for at least a dollar per episode, you'll have access to special monthly bonus episodes via Patreon that are available no place else. You can also visit profcj.org slash donate to donate to the show via PayPal or Bitcoin. And you can also help the show out financially by doing your Amazon shopping after first going through any of the affiliate links found on my website. And if you do that, I will get a small commission from Amazon at no cost to you. So thanks again for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. This has been Prof CJ, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.